the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, indeed he is. Check that. Thank you very much, gang. Check my ID at the door. And yeah, it's me. And they uh, they not only let me in, they forced me in. It's it's a tough situation. Any event, great to have you on board. It is the Tuesday edition of Lifeline for this 26th day of February. Just a couple of days left here in the month. Hard to believe. We're, we've got two months of 2019 already under belt. My goodness, before you know it, we'll be wishing everybody a happy St. Patrick's Day and then making plans for the Thanksgiving turkey. It just seems to work like that. Speaking of the calendar pages turning quickly, hard to believe that the next annual Bass Convention is coming to the San Francisco Bay Area, but it is indeed 57 years and still going strong, attracting folks from churches from throughout the Bay Area and Northern California. On average, about 300-something churches participate this. And it really is an opportunity to not only come together and to encourage one another, but also to exchange best practices so we get a better sense of what seems to be working, what's most effective in the changing face of local ministry. Might be evangelism, children's outreach, uh, whatever it might be, whatever you might be involved with, or whatever you'd like to get engaged with. Maybe you're somebody who says, you know, I've, I've always wanted to get involved in ministry, but I'm intimidated. I don't have a degree. I've never been to seminary. And so I really don't know what I would do once I got involved. Well, then the Bass Convention is certainly for you. To talk a bit more about the Bass Convention, that kicks off one week from Thursday. And you've heard mention we're going to be there live for two days, both Thursday and Friday of next week. And while we invite you to come down and see us, we want you to participate in the three-day event hosted at Redwood Chapel in Castro Valley. Joining me, Volunteer Engagement Coordinator for the annual Bass Convention, Weston Picorni. Weston, great to have you with us. Hi, Greg. Good evening. Thank you. This is going to be another amazing event, as it is every single year, and a lot of people get to come together and not only enjoy the general sessions, but that sense of iron, sharpening iron as people share experiences and insights and thoughts, and we really get an opportunity to to learn from each other. And, and toward that end, I understand you've got kind of a unique story as to how the Bass Convention became a particular blessing in your life. Take us back, if you would. I know you're involved with the Three Crosses Church, their neighborhood church in Castro Valley, but how did you wind up attending your first Bass Convention? Yes, uh, a, a pastor of hospitality, Vance Hunter at Three Crosses, invited me to uh, to greet. I, I, I love greeting, and uh, he thought it would be a perfect fit back in 2016. And I was just energized. I mean, the whole event uh, is is incredibly exciting to see brothers and sisters from so many different churches just across Northern California, even across the states in some cases. Uh, and 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 uh, I I was just thrilled to be uh, part of uh, you know greeting and guiding people 
and helping with ushering and all that's needed to, to serve our, our guests. And I understand in your case, you, you also had a unique experience in that the Lord used your first attendance at this event uh, in a very special way. Can you just give us sort of the Reader's Digest version of what happened? Yes, certainly. Well, it was a long day. I decided to go see what the student ministries at Redwood Chapel had for me, and I was a, I got I grabbed myself a burger and was trying to find a place to sit. And uh, I saw a gentleman sitting on a, at a table, and I I introduced myself and and I said, "What's your story?" And he he was a workshop leader for uh, the forgiveness ministry, and uh, in and we got to talking and. In, in our talking and getting exchanging our backgrounds, I, I basically I confessed to him that I, I had forgiveness issues that I, I I thought I had resolved, and uh, it was a wonderful time of fellowship. We ended up praying for each other's needs, and it, it was just incredible. It's just one story, and then that evening, after uh, after cleaning up and getting ready to go, I got a divine text from the the very person. Uh, that I hadn't spoken to in a very long time, and it was an opportunity to put to practice what I learned at the Bass Convention. The uh, the old adage, "Curiosity kills the cat." I'm curious. Was that it? Wasn't Steve Deal? Was it? It was. Uh, it was uh, his his uh, uh, partner, Steve. Uh, um, uh, Scott. Scott. Okay, great. Yeah, I, I mentioned that because uh, many KFAX listeners are familiar with Forgiveness Ministries and, and Steve Deal. And of course, he's had a radio program here on KFAX for many, many years and will probably be showing up uh, during our live broadcast uh, next Thursday and Friday from the Bass Convention, again, hosted at Redwood Chapel in Castro Valley. In addition, Weston, to all of the great resources that are available, and I encourage listeners to go to bassconvention.org. That's BassConvention.org. Get information about signing up. There are dozens and dozens, probably in the hundreds, of workshops that are available uh, over the three days in every imaginable arena. So if you're already involved in ministry at some level and you're just looking to sharpen your skills, there's something for you. If you're somebody who would like to get involved, you're not really clear about exactly how or where God is calling you. You want to kind of get out there and sample what's available. You'll find something for you. And of course, course, the general sessions where everybody comes together and wonderful keynote speakers get a chance to be really blessed and encouraged. And of course, along with not only attending to learn and experience in the general meetings and in all of the workshops, there's also an opportunity, I understand, at Weston still for volunteers. It's a big event and you need a lot of folks to help make it work. We certainly do. And we appreciate everyone that's that comes and finds a, a unique way to serve. Uh, the, the, uh, and, and the biggest need is greeting and guiding people. It's a big campus. There's over 60 rooms, and uh, we need greeters and, and people to kind of guide and direct people both inside and outside. I'm hoping for some good weather. <laughs> and uh, it, that's we certainly do. As a matter of fact, we also have needs this year for uh, um, having people help with the media and getting the recording services, so um, kind of doing hospitality for shuttling um, the, the media back and forth to the, the individual workshops for the recording and such. So uh, we, definitely, we certainly need help, but I would recommend everyone to just from the homepage partner with Bass and become a volunteer. That would be fantastic, and I would love to 
uh, to work with you and, uh, and help you. And as you mentioned, Weston, from your own personal story, you, you went in with the notion of going to serve and to be a blessing to others, and God ended up um, setting up this divine encounter and ministering to you. You didn't go there with that intent in mind, but God had that intent. So it's an opportunity not only to bless others, but also to be blessed. Again, the three dates of the convention coming up on Thursday, it'll be the general um, administra- uh, registration rather, and then, of course, the general session Thursday evening, although there is a pre-leadership uh, luncheon uh, earlier that day. Exhibits open at 4.30 p.m., and again, the general session kicks off at 7 p.m. with worship, and then uh, a talk by Dr. David Whittaker and Dr. David Ekman, uh, who will be speaking the following days. Exhibits open both Friday and Saturday, as well as into Sunday, and if you'd like to come experience it, you can sign up. You can certainly get information about participating by going to Bass convention.org. That's bassconvention.org. And if you'd like to give a little bit of your time, as Weston mentioned, plenty of opportunities uh, to come, be a greeter, help folks kind of figure out where they're at, get the lay of the land. It is a big campus and a lot of folks, a lot of stuff going on. So if you'd like to volunteer some of your time, um, go to the, what was the page again on on the bassconvention.org, Weston? Well, if you, org forward slash volunteer takes you right to uh, the volunteer instructions and the sign-up button. Even easier, org forward slash volunteer. That's org forward slash volunteer. Again, the three days of the now 57th annual Bay Area Church Workers Convention taking place next Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, March 7, 8, and 9, hosted at Redwood Chapel in Castro Valley. And we invite you to come on down and say hi. We'll be broadcasting live both Thursday and Friday at 5 p.m. So uh, we look forward to seeing you there at the annual Bass Convention. More information again on the web at bassconvention.org. And our thanks to Volunteer Engagement Coordinator Weston Picorni for being with us on that segment of Lifeline. 5.15 exactly on the clock. Let's see what's going on. We've had promises of storms coming in, a lot of it, of course, affecting the North Bay. Any impact on the commute yet? Dark clouds out there. Let's get the latest. We talk with Michael Bennett, who's got an update for us from the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're back. Not that we ever went anywhere. 20 minutes after the hour, 5 p.m. here on the Tuesday edition of Lifeline. It is an army, a potential army, that is 80 million strong, or at least it will be by the time that the uh, final baby boomer says, that's it, I'm done, and goes into retirement. And, you know, it's interesting when you think about just this this broader idea of retirement, and we, we all sort of... Uh, when we reach a certain age, look forward to the day when we can go into the boss and say, that's it, I'm done. And then you're going to lay on, uh, you know, white sand-kissed beaches or spend your time watching, uh, you know, soap operas, eating bonbons on the couch, whatever it might be. But oddly enough, historically, the concept of retirement is really uniquely a 20th century phenomenon. Prior to that, you just kind of worked till you dropped. Setting money aside for retirement didn't exist as a concept, uh, certainly not as a principle. 
And vehicles like Social Security, of course, didn't come about until uh, the mid-1930s. 34, I think, the Social Security Act was signed into law. Prior to that, you got no government help. There was no uh, schedule to set aside a portion of your paycheck and put it into a, a big pool where you can then draw upon it when you retired. And even if back in those days uh, you were you were fortunate enough to uh, be one of the early recipients of Social Security, in those days, for the most part, Looking at longevity tables, the government expected that you would retire at 65 and drop dead by 68. End of story. Well, that's all changed. Longevity tables today suggest that more and more Americans are uh, reaching retirement stretches that last almost as long as their working years. And, of course, the number of centenarians doubling virtually every few years. So what of all of this? When you think of retirement, what do you think of the next stage of your life? Or is that to you your final stage of life? And if it is, then it's important that you stay tuned for our conversation coming up right now with a gentleman who believes not in just being retired, but once you reach so-called retirement to actually be refired. He is a central figure in the retirement reformation movement. He's founder and CEO of Envoy Financial, a retirement provider that serves those in ministry. He's been involved in business himself for many, many years. He's got an MBA from University of California at Berkeley, more than 40 years of professional experience in the arena of retirement planning and finance, and um, is now the head of retirement reformation. Pleased to have Bruce Burnsma join us. And Bruce, what about this idea, this notion that retirement is, is really more of a 20th century phenomenon that prior to probably the 1930s, most folks never gave it any thought? Well, Craig, it's good to be with you and, and with your lifetime audience. And your introduction was fantastic. I need to record that and use it in lots of places because you were right on. That whole issue of longevity is when you combine that with new things in our culture brings us to just a totally new set of circumstances that, frankly, we're not very well equipped to handle. So that longevity number that you talked about, frankly, our research shows that more and more we're looking at a 30-year period, a 30-year period for pity sakes. Now, just think about it for a second. Go back, if, if you're over age 50, and go back to when you were 20 then go mentally to age 50 and ask yourself, what in the world happened in my life during that period of time? Answer, oh my goodness, just about everything. And so this whole idea of longevity and how do we understand and deal with, uh, as a Christian, those last 30 years of life is one of the pressing issues of our time. And, you know, that period of time that you refer to, uh, from the time we graduate high school, maybe go on to college, meet a sweetheart, get married, get a career, get a house, raise a family, et cetera, et cetera, uh, that's not insignificant by any means whatsoever. And, of course, all of those experiences from high school graduation to the point where you finally say, that's it, I'm hanging it up and I'm done, is filled with nothing but purpose. Purpose in marriage, purpose in raising family, purpose in work, all of it. And yet somehow, and maybe you can help us understand this, Bruce, somehow there seems to be something in the psyche of a lot of people that are close to retirement that feel as if when they retire, 
purpose is no longer important. So in other words, when you're working, you have to get up in the morning because you've got to be at work at a certain time. You've got to have a meeting. You're, you're, you have an engagement with clients or coworkers or uh, whatever it might be. You're answering telephone calls, sending out emails. All of this activity is going on. And of course, you're bringing money home to help set money aside for retirement, pay the mortgage, care for your family. And then suddenly this segment of the population that hits retirement and says, okay, that's it, I'm done. I, 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 I guess what confuses me is the notion of going, you know, certainly throwing the brakes on and saying I'm going from a life filled with purpose to a life with no purpose at all. Well, that problem of lack of purpose and meaning is really critical. And one of the things that feeds that is, a, is, is the way that culture um, de- describes retirement. Let me just give you that definition. Here's a simple one. Retirement is that period of time. It's basically downhill, both physically and mentally, and then you die, and the goal is to jam as much leisure as you can into the time in between. Well, there's a couple of big lies in all of that. First of all, that 30-year period isn't one homogeneous period of time. Secondly, there's lots more that we are called to do uh, than just deteriorate physically and mentally. And then I think there's one other piece to that, is that our research shows that a couple of things. First, one is that the, the average person can be quite clear about what they're retiring from. But, Craig, they are very unclear about what they are retiring to. Eighty-five percent of Christians, when asked, what are you going to do in retirement, come up with some version of nothing. Now, that may be couched in terms of leisure, as you talked about it, or other ways, but it certainly has nothing to do with meaning and purpose, and particularly, as Christians, any call that we have to be able to carry out and to build the kingdom. And so there's where there's this huge, this huge void that we call retirement. And maybe a fundamental disconnect that... that that raises to the level of the inability to really have appropriate uh, expectations about retirement. And, and, I, and I, I raise that question because I've had certainly friends that have retired, and, and, and as they're hitting retirement, they say, boy, what do you think? Oh, I'm looking forward to getting out of the rat race. Well, what are you going to do? Oh, boy, I am going to be out there for nine or 18 holes of golf Monday through Friday. I don't have anybody I have to answer to. I don't have to be anywhere, et cetera, et cetera. Sounds like nirvana. In fact, after a busy work here around the uh, week here around the office, uh, uh, while I'm not a golfer, the idea of getting out of the office and doing something that is in that leisure category looks very appealing. Now try doing that day after day after day after day. All of a sudden, the the escapism that golf provided in your working years now tends to get a little bit boring. And I'll probably upset one or two golfers in the audience when I say that. But it, but it seems as if there's a fundamental disconnect in terms of somehow thinking that the plan is nothing and in our nothingness after a while, you know, initially the idea of doing nothing sounds appealing. Then you get into week number two and your wife says, can you go do something because you're invading my territory now? And all of a sudden, not only does it put stress on a marriage relationship, but I think then the the motivation to get up and do anything with a sense of purpose is completely gone. And therefore, what is this, just waiting for the grave? Let me, let me tell you a story that I think illustrates that in a, in a really way and was one of the key events in my life a number of years ago that, that led to, to this 
this desire to understand the issues and now what is the retirement reformation. I was on a plane from, um, uh, from Tokyo to Dallas. And the gentleman sitting next to me, I often don't talk to people when I'm on those long-distance flights, but I got into a conversation with him, and, and he, was a, you know, he was a really nice guy, and we got into this in-depth conversation. And, uh, and uh, he shared with me, he said that, that he had sold his company about six years before. And I asked him, I said, so what have you been doing in the interim six years? And he thought for a few moments, and then he kind of turned to me, and he said, Bruce, you know, honestly, nothing. And I said to him, I said, so how's that working out for you? And he paused again, and he said, you know, Bruce, I think I'm at the end of nothing. Hmm. How poignant that is. And when you think about, there, there, there are points in our lives of, of dramatic transition. That time, you know, when we left home, the time when we went from from seventh to eighth grade, the time when we got married, the kind our kids left, and so on and so forth. There are points of dramatic transition, and the key is that we are aware of and embrace the idea of going through a growing transformation to something new. When I talk to audiences and, and I ask, you know, how many of you believe that God has a plan for your life? And everybody raises their hand, yes, I do. Then I ask the question, then why is it at 65 or 70 we don't act that way? We act as if God's plan for our life stops at 65 or 70, and after that it's just kind of nothing. Well, that's not the way I read my Bible, frankly. And, and I believe that he's got a call in our life for every stage of it, and that our whole life is a preparation for what's coming next. That's exciting. That can have meaning and purpose. Well, the other notion that sort of attends to this is the idea as we go through, and you referred to this earlier, the different stages in life. So there's, you know, the educational stage and the career stage, the family stage, and eventually, you know, accumulation of wealth stage heading toward retirement. We want to say that <coughs> we're done there. But then it begs the question, what about this base, this base of knowledge and skills and wisdom and experience that we've accumulated for all of those years, and now we're going to say all of it now suddenly means nothing. It's like they pulled back your scalp and vacuumed out all of that overnight, and you don't have any intention of doing anything with a sense of purpose with any of those skills or the knowledge or the wisdom that you've gained down through the years. And I think this concept of not being retired, but rather being refired upon retirement means that you can put that knowledge base and that wisdom and experience and those skills to work in a next phase of life that can help benefit others around you, benefit the church. In fact, pastors, are you listening? There is a gold mine of qualified, experienced, ready-to-roll mentors and volunteers and many missionaries waiting at your disposal for you to simply issue the call. And while I want you to ponder that for a moment, we're going to come back full circle after a brief timeout and an update on traffic to our conversation with Bruce, find out exactly what that looks like, and dig a little deeper in terms of what it means for you to be refired and to establish a sense of purpose in your own retirement. All right, 532, let's get a look at traffic right now. The latest with Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center.
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're back with Bruce Burns. By the way, more information available on the web at retirementreformation.org. That's retirementreformation.org. We're talking about a whole new viewpoint of retirement, not just what you're retiring from, but what you're retiring to. And as I suggested, Bruce, before the break, uh, boy, there's a gold mine sitting out there. We know a lot of, I personally know a lot of pastors that pastor small to medium-sized churches that are so worn out, they're desperate for volunteers, and they say, you know, the problem is my people are busy, they're raising families, and so it's difficult for me to find skilled people that can help partner with our ministry. Boy, isn't there a treasure trove of just the very people that are needed sitting right there if they only knew it. Absolutely. Matter of fact, one of the greatest uh, needs is to help engage uh, the the 235,000 pastors in the country uh, with this message. A couple of things that may be helpful in understanding that. First of all, in retirement, there are actually three stages very quickly. One of them we call active application. So, you know, 67 to 77 or so, active application. Second, between, say, 77 and mid-80s, mentoring, and you talked about that. What a, what a great resource with all the knowledge and experience that's available there. And then that third stage, 87 to maybe 104, uh, which we call sharing or reflecting, a couple of examples of that. Billy Graham wrote his last book at age 97, and our former president, Jimmy Carter, uh, has written a couple of really good books on faith after he was age 90. So there's Lots of opportunity, but those are different stages, and God prepares us for each one of those, and the church needs to be open to embracing those and doing it. Frankly, Craig, you know, my experience is here's basically what many churches tell their seniors. Two things. One, don't stop giving. Second, don't be grumpy. Hmm. And if you think about it, most churches, Bruce... Um, you'll see them offering. You can go to any church website in the country, practically, and you'll find out that they've got a plethora of programs for children, youth group, married couples, uh, but seldom anything that gets seniors engaged. Yeah, the things for seniors are, do you want to pass out bulletins? Uh, Does your wife want to hold the babies in the nursery? Uh, And, by the way, we're going to have a trip to XYZ in two weeks. So uh, you talked about 80,000 baby boomers, let's just say there's 30,000 that are Christian in that process, and let's say that we're able to impact the lives of 10 million of them, okay, 10 million of the 30 million. Right now, if they came to the church and said, God's got a call in my life right now, here's how he's prepared me, here's what I'd like to do, can I find meaning and purpose and express that through your church and its activities, and I'm afraid there's going to be a very, very long silence and pretty much of a deadly stare. We need to change that. And, you know, the interesting thing is if we just uh, if we just modified the dialogue slightly, if, if we went to the average pastor and said, uh, gee, pastor, in the administration of the church here, uh, would you love it if there was a experienced, licensed um, CPA that would be available to help with the church treasury or maybe a licensed attorney or, you know, name the discipline. And it can run the gambit of people that that, that have uh, skills related to, uh, you know, 
painting houses to uh, you know administrative skills and say, gee, now what if we could get people of that experience and that discipline that would come and work for the church for free? Wow, most pastors that have their eyes open as saucers, as wide as saucers, with a sense of excitement about that. But immediately then the disappointment would set in when they realize, well, nobody's going to come and do that. Yeah, what about all of these retired folks that have the skills, the knowledge, the wisdom, the experience that would love to be refired and given a new sense of purpose? Uh, you know, you, you talk about staying in the game. Uh, boy, what an amazing way to stay in the game. And what a way in which the effectiveness of the impact of a parachurch organization or a church organization could be if they sort of tapped in to this this vein, this this gold mine of resources out there. Let me just share with you, Craig, and, and with your and with your audience, with your listeners, a really, really big vision. Here it is. That we will have a retirement reformation counselor, advisor, coordinator in every single church and parachurch in the country. When that happens, we'll tip the tide and the direction of the kingdom will be moving forward much faster than it is now. Yeah, this is really, I think, at the end of the day, Bruce, ought to be a clarion call for not only current church leadership, that means pastors eavesdropping on our conversation, but for folks that are either retirees, soon to be retirees, thinking about becoming retirees, we all need to ask ourselves the question, then what? The what I'm retiring from part, we all get that. We can easily give an answer. We're retiring from the commute, the dirty boss that we don't like, the low pay, the whatever it is, the the rat race, whatever. The retiring to part is something that, and this isn't to suggest you don't get a chance to do any leisure time. You can't go see the grandkids. You're signing up for another full-time job. Woe is me. Not suggesting that at all, but saying that along with and in addition to the overseas travel and the time with the grandkids and puttering around in the yard and things of that sort, that there are hours, maybe not 40 hours a week, maybe 20 hours a week, in which you could give of your time, your talent, your skills to be a mentor to young people, to uh, to assist with a, with a church or a parachurch organization who would be so tremendously blessed to plug in to skills of somebody just like you. And I like the fact, Bruce, that you underscore that even after you get into the octarian age and beyond, that your value doesn't diminish. Maybe what you do and how you do it changes because you don't have the health about you. So, you know, you can't be on your feet uh, eight hours a day, uh, you know, volunteering at the church nursery school. But now you've moved into sort of that advisory position where you can be like on a church council and 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 offer insight and advice. I mean, I, to me, there is there's no such thing as running out of value because to say that is to suggest that that God somehow puts a limit on the blessings that He gives us and wishes to for us to use uh, just because we turn a certain calendar page. Well, let me just share with you and. Uh, just a couple of, uh, just two that are the dividends of aging. Not the decline physically and mentally, but a couple of dividends. Here they are. One is that we have the opportunity to grow spiritually. We can grow in our relationship to God and, and plug into the power of His Holy Spirit and the, the wisdom that comes with that. So there's one plus that comes from aging. Another one is that we're able to grow emotionally. We're able to speak into the difficult issues of life because. We've seen how it works. We've had the experiences. 
And all of us have difficult relationships that need speaking into. And because there are so many, um, uh, so many different age groups now living together, uh, so many generations, matter of fact, it's not unusual now for there to be six generations alive at the same time. Man, we got a lot of issues that come up there that we need God's wisdom to be able to speak into and to bring his love and, uh, and understanding to. All right. So with all of that said, um, some people listening to this say, okay, you've, you've convinced me. I need to rethink this. Where do I go? How do I get started? Where, where do I join the Retirement Reformation? First of all, retirementreformation.org is a really great place to start. And you'll see there, amongst other things, there are a number of authors who have written really great books. There's more inform- uh, There's uh, an ongoing amount of information that's a, that is available there to, to help you to walk through those issues. And then I'd like to draw your audience to the attention to the Retirement Reformation Manifesto. Here are 10 principles that, in fact, can be of help to you in understanding the issues, not only what are the problems, but what are the opportunities, and how, as Christians, we need to walk through them. So I would direct them initially to the Retirement Reformation Manifesto at retirementreformation.org. I also have to say, probably end of March, 1st of April, there will be another book that will add to the list with the amazing name of the Retirement Reformation. So resources are beginning to be gathered from across the country to be of help uh, to individuals and then also to churches and organizations as they work through these issues. And I think every pastor right now need, needs to stop and say, you know, the next time we have a board of deacons meeting or leadership meeting, we really need to ask ourselves the question, are we wasting one of the most valuable resources that God has literally dropped in our laps by not giving opportunities for these dear people in our church to be involved, not just to fill a pew, not just to be there to uh, be a cash cow and help support the church because they've got the disposable income to do it, but rather to be really fully and deeply engaged in multiple ways and multiple layers. There are seniors out there that would love to have the opportunity to find purpose again in life if they just knew where. Let you be the one that can start the process to say, here and now, you can go to work using your wisdom, your experience, your skills, your knowledge in either a church or a parachurch organization to rediscover life with purpose. And at the end of the day, not to end out of desperation and simply being worn out, but rather to finish strong. I'd like to thank uh, Bruce Burnsma for being with us today. Again, information available on the web, retirementreformation.org. That's retirementreformation.org. Great stuff, Bruce. Thanks for the time. We'll hope to get you back on the program uh, when the book comes out and talk more about this. This is a topic that's very timely, and I don't think we can talk about it too much. There's uh, Bruce Burnsma, again, the founder CEO of Envoy Financial a key figure in the Retirement Reformation movement. Information available on the web for you at retirementreformation.org. All right, 547 o'clock. Let's get a look at traffic. Michael Bennett, what's going on out there from the KFAX Traffic Center? Michael?
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Ten away from six o'clock, we continue on this Tuesday edition of Lifeline. And um, we turn a corner now to deal with a topic that, quite frankly, is kind of crushing in on uh, not only the church, but American society and and culture in general, Um, without getting specific about headline stories that have occupied uh, the newspapers and and certainly online and and radio and TV over the last many days related to people making crazy decisions that have um, less than ideal outcomes. And so much of this goes back to the notion that there's no longer the moral line in the sand, we'll call it. There's no longer a definitive sense of, well, you can't do that because that's not right or that would be wrong. Now, let me be clear. It's not as if the line in the sand doesn't exist. It's just that we've chosen to ignore it, this sense of moral ambiguity where, listen, we just kind of make it up as we go along. There's your truth and my truth and our truth and their truth, but no definitive truth, no overarching truth that's true for everyone. Well, if everybody can be right and everybody can be wrong, then I suppose at the end of the day, it just depends on what side of the line in the sand you're standing on as to uh, how you conclude what uh, the moral law is or isn't. And the more we further sort of depart from uh, this, this clear line in the sand, I'm calling it, I think the more nasty society and culture is going to become and the more problematic it's going to be. Some might sort of distill this down to the notion that we're, we're pulling away from our Judeo-Christian ethic or denying more of the existence of God and natural law. However you wish to define it, the end results are going to be the same. Pandemonium and chaos, and all of a sudden society is no longer society. There's no civility whatsoever. It's just up for grabs. Let's dive deeper into this topic. Joining me is the Director of Christian Worldview and Apologetics at the Christian Worldview Center of North Greenville University. He is the author of more than 20 books, including his latest, Stand Strong in Your Faith. He is religion and culture expert, Dr. Alex McFarland. Dr. McFarland, always a delight and an education to have you join us. Well, you're very kind. God bless you, and thank you for having me on. You know, I wanted to thank you. You've been so gracious over the years. We've had a a longstanding relationship doing interviews and broadcasts together, and I wanted to say thanks because you've enabled us to um, discuss some very important concepts and ideas and hopefully spread truth to a lot of your fine listeners. So thank you. Well, appreciate the kind words, and uh, we're equally blessed to have a resource like you available to our listeners here in the greater San Francisco Bay Area and Northern California, a region of the country that, that some might argue certainly doesn't understand what the moral line in the sand is about or is, is, is practice uh, this sense of moral ambiguity to uh, the, the penultimate perfection. But it it, it poses a major problem, does it not? I mean, just, you know, the, 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 the issue of the ability for us to be kind to each other, because we have a sense of what morality is and what's right and wrong. Uh, you know, we, we think almost uniquely of morality as something that impacts our relationship with God, but it's really broader and deeper than that, isn't it? Well, it, it really is. I mean, when we think about religion, we think about the uh, faith and the beliefs and rituals that, um, you know, a, a faith system lays down by which one might uh, have a relationship with God. 
But morality is different than religion. Morality, as you well said in, in the introduction, are those, those lines in the sand that human history has recognized for 6,000 years plus. You know, we don't lie, we don't murder, we don't steal, we are to be civil and honest and respectful to each other. And um, the, the part of the problem with America and the West is that for four to five decades, we, we've in government, in culture, and certainly in academics, there's just been this unrelenting, concerted effort to suppress knowledge of morality. And we are really beginning to see more and more vividly the seeds of chaos and anarchy being being sown and, and bearing fruit. You know, um, uh, Craig, did you see the article a week ago with uh, Martina Navratilova about her um, unwillingness to compete against transgender women slash males in professional sports? No, I missed that. Okay, uh, Martina Navratilova... 30, 35 years ago, uh, as a world-renowned tennis player, and some say she's the best female tennis player ever, but she came out as a lesbian and had lived with her partner, and I remember that was in the news very prominently. Well, a week and a half ago, Martina Navratilova, she was reacting to men that compete in women's sports because many of the sanctioning bodies for pro sports if a man says he's a transgender woman, even though he's a male with all the muscle mass of a male, the testosterone, uh, men are being allowed to compete in many growing numbers of women's sports, and they make large money, and they dominate. Uh, but in tennis in Europe, um, men would compete in women's tennis, but would impregnate a female and have a baby with their partner. Martina Navratilova, I, I won't and I can't use the language that she used, but she said, look, if you can impregnate a female, you're not a woman. And she said, if you're transgender, I will call you by whatever designation you want, but I'm not going to compete with you because you're, and, and, and again, she was somewhat graphic in her anatomical descriptions, but she said, if you're a male, you're not a female. Well, and at the end yeah. of the day, I mean, there there is a biological reality here, and I guess it, it sort of defeats the purpose if we want to talk at, uh, talk about women's tennis and men's tennis, and all of a sudden anybody can play on either side. Well, then it's no longer women's and men's tennis. It's just tennis. Exactly. Well, the Internet, of course, is having a meltdown, and all of the, the pro-gay, gender fluidity, transgender people are calling her... Now think about this, Martina Navratilova, they're calling her homophobic and genderphobic and transphobic. <laughs> kind of missing part of the point, aren't they? And, and, you know, what's ironic about this is no one wants to point out the elephant in the room that there is a clear and, and decidedly unfair advantage that someone would have, you know, w w without, you know, opening up the can of worms here. And we, we've talked a lot on this program in recent years about gender dysphoria. And I, and I don't want to turn this conversation into a conversation about that. But there are still biological truisms that even if you wish to call them something different or ignore them, doesn't make them no, any less true. 
And so the notion of wishing to just, you know, if I call a horse a cat, um, you know, at the end of the day, I can I can embrace that as much as I want. But biologically, that animal is going to be a horse and not a cat. And if you don't want to believe me, uh, you know, try, try getting on the back of your cat and taking it for a ride and see what happens. Good illustration. Okay, Sunday night, the Oscars, um, uh, the the gentleman that won uh, Best Actor Award for his portrayal of Freddie Murphy. Red Malik. Malik. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Um, great film. Uh, Queen made some very complex, very great music. I don't like the lifestyle of Freddie Mercury, but I can acknowledge they really were incredible musicians, and he's an incredible actor. So he gives a speech, and he's best actor. He says um, he's very honored to have portrayed on screen a gay man. Well, the Internet has a meltdown going on right now and they said how dare you call freddie mercury gay <laughs> um okay well he i mean um you know and i i saw queen live back in the day and you know i mean freddie mercury you practically if you looked up gay in the dictionary you would practically find his picture there now the point the reason i'm telling you all this i honestly believe this craig um people are so against any labels. You can't call me male, even though I'm a male, the world would say. You can't point out the obvious. Um, people are denying reality and denying truisms and denying things that are really, frankly, undeniable to rational people because they want to be their own God. I mean, think about this with um, what I've, I've actually dialogued with college students that they want to be identified as an avatar or an emoji or a, a Japanimation character or be transhuman or whatever. And the idea to say to God, you know, God, you have no claim on my life. You can't even define what I am. I and I alone will shape my own reality. I'll define reality on my own terms. Um, Two things. It's like the Book of Judges. Everybody did that, which is right in their own eyes. But it's also, uh, in a way, demonic, because while there's much about life that we can use our free will, we can make choices, but all of us as human beings have to humbly acquiesce to some of the things that are simply part and parcel of reality. I mean, you could be rich, famous, powerful, but you will never change uh, the force of gravity. Um, you could, you know, have all the plastic surgery in the world, but you will either be an XY male or an XX female. And my point is this, um, there's something, I believe, something about the insistence of the world today that I and I alone call the shots in my world. It's really a latent subconscious desire to reject the true God and to be my own God. Well, listen, we've had this conversation before insofar as uh, part of the argument, I think, behind uh, the the issue of evolution, uh, particularly as we see more and more scientists that come along and say, I won't call it God, but I will say that scientifically there is no 
explanation as to how man came to be unless there is some degree of intervention by um, intelligent design. Well, if you want to use intelligent design as another term for God, I'm okay with that. But I think that there are plenty that have followed the line of thinking related to evolution, because if we can somehow take God out of the equation, take intelligent design out of the equation, and it's all a big accident, it just a big boom happened, and, and here we are, now all of a sudden, no longer do I have to be thinking about God, nor accountable to God, because we've managed to take God out of the existence equation. And I liken it to the march that we've seen down through the last 40 years of trying to sanitize the public arena from all things religious. You know, the whole issue of uh, back in 1963, 64, Madeline Murray O'Hare, we can't possibly have Bible reading in the public classrooms. You can't teach the Bible, and you certainly can't post the Ten Commandments. Fast forward 40 years, kids are bringing guns to school and killing each other. They're stealing they're disrespecting their parents. They're breaking just about all nine or ten of the Ten Commandments. And then we look at each other and say, well, what happened? Well, I tell you what happened. You, you, you took God and morality out of the equation, and now you are reaping the whirlwind. Let's pause on that point. We're going to come back to more of our conversation. Our visit today with Dr. Alex McFarland, religion and culture expert, director of Christian Worldview and Apologetics at the Christian Worldview Center of North Greenville University. We take a time out, an update on some traffic. We'll do that right here. So we head over to the KFAX Traffic Center and say hello to Michael Bennett. Michael, what's going on out there? Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 